All right, so we've arrived at that moment. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and the final verses of the chapter. I want to thank uh, those of you who have uh, come to me uh, recently and uh, expressed your praying for, for me and my family. Uh, we are doing well. We're praising the Lord. Uh, but it always is great to know that, uh, that you're praying for us um, you know, as we go through events like uh, memorial services and uh, helping some. Uh, you know, it is, it is difficult as you try to minister to families, but uh, more so because of what they're going through and you see the sadness and the grief. And, the, and so I want to thank you for praying. I'm humbled that you would send me emails, letters, uh, texts, phone calls, however you, you correspond uh, with people, that you would send them to me and tell me you're praying for me. I also want to thank you for praying for uh, me regarding um, the dissertation, the little paper I'm trying to finish. Several of you have asked questions. I'm actually going to use it as an intro into the sermon tonight. This is going somewhere. So uh, I do want to thank you, though, for praying. Um, it's been uh, quite a long journey, and uh, April 16th is a due date that I intend to hit by God's grace. So April 15th, that is, you know, that's tax day. So I'm going to work all day on taxes on April 15th, and then April 16th, I'm going to work all day on my dissertation and turn it in. So um, I guess it could be worse. It could be on the same day, and that would be just overwhelming. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, a, a great journey in working on the project. I've been working on this paper for seven years, and a few months ago as I was working on this, I came to a surprising challenge I thought maybe I would never get to experience, and I'll tell you that in just a second. Along the way, in the process of the seven years, there have been many bumps in the road. Uh, I remember when I, I first got there, it starts with a month-long uh, residency, and so uh, we treated it like a military deployment, of course, but I was in a library not doing anything dangerous. Um, and so uh, three weeks in, uh, by, at, at the end of the one month, you were supposed to uh, turn in your first chapter. And I guess three weeks into it, I gave my material to my advisor to look at before I'd present it. And he said, "Uh, Brent, what you have here, you have a really good uh, future article that you need to write. And that's actually not a compliment. That's basically saying you don't have enough for a dissertation. You're going to have to start over. And so for a week, um, I struggled and struggled to find an entirely different topic. And so all the other guys had one month to write. I had one week to find a topic and write a chapter. And so, um, by God's grace, uh, we found something and uh, started through it. That was one of the, the difficulties. Uh, another difficulty, if you remember what my topic is, I'm, I'm writing regarding quotations of the Old Testament in different authors. And so one of the challenges is my advisor wanted me to go through all of the Dead Sea Scrolls and find quotations of the Old Testament and see if there were any of them that joined more than one text together. And so I found out, though, that there was no glossary of Old Testament quotations like that. And so I had to go through every, every work looking for quotations, and then when I found them, I had to look. I remember one bumpy part in the road was I also was supposed to look at early Jewish rabbis in their quoting of the Old Testament. And I honestly spent nine months, nine months researching in my free time, and uh, sometimes not in my free time, for these quotations. And after nine months, my advisor and I decided, after I found them all, that I didn't need, that I shouldn't write a chapter on that. So there have been these bumps along the way. Well, the surprising challenge came to me a few 
weeks ago, and that is, how do you finish this project? Like, what I mean is, I had a plan for the final chapter, and I mapped that out, but I actually came to a place where I was writing the final paragraph. I never thought I would get there. You know, and so as I'm writing this final paragraph, you know, you're trying to craft these words that are just going to bring it all to this grand conclusion, you know. But every set of words I tried to include in that paragraph just kind of fizzled out. I could find no words to really capture all the blood, sweat, and tears uh, that went into this project. You know, final words uh, are very important. As we come to the end of 1 Corinthians, I'm impressed by Paul's final words. His words, though, they don't fizzle out like mine did or do. His words are quite impactful. And as he goes through here, there's something he's going to emphasize and something I think we'll see in just about, I I think there are three paragraphs here in this last section. Um, And in two of those paragraphs, he will end with this main predominant thought. And the challenge is what I, I decided at the very beginning of our series to emphasize, and that is love. You'll see it three times in these last verses, some statement about love. And so uh, this evening, as we work through this text very quickly in a survey form, I want to emphasize the love that we need to have for one another in the body. And so uh, as we look at these final words of the Apostle Paul, they start in verse 13, and they go through verse 24. There are three sections, as I see it, or three ways I would summarize these final or concluding words from the Apostle Paul. The first point, the first way I'd summarize it, is in verses 13 and 14, you have some concluding imperatives. You know, Paul's really good at giving final imperatives, and there are five of them. Look in your Bible, verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. As we look at these final imperatives, we've, we've seen some of these throughout the book already. I, I think I could even uh, break the imperatives down a little bit in, in that I would say the first four to me seem to fit together in verse 12. And the let everything you do be done in love uh, seems to be a little bit different uh, of an imperative. So the first four I think have to do with the way these believers would treat other professing believers who have false teaching or or are believing wrong things about the gospel. And so uh, Paul says first, be watchful. But one of the things we need to ask about that imperative is in what way does Paul want us to be watchful? There are different ways that Christians should be on the alert or different things we should be looking for. So what does Paul have in his mind? Uh, some writers think that when Paul says be watchful, that he's kind of repeating what Jesus said earlier in the Gospels, to be on the alert, to be on the lookout, okay? But uh, they think especially that Paul might be saying keep on the alert in regards to the second coming of Jesus. And that there's definitely a sense in which that is true. As you go throughout the New Testament, you see we are to be on the, on, we're to be watching, right? Waiting for the return of the Lord. As a matter of fact, one commentator, Richard Hayes, thinks that's what this be watchful means. He says, Paul's call to watchfulness here in 1613 should certainly be understood as a call for them to look intently for the coming of the Lord and to conduct themselves in a way appropriate to that hope. And so he might mean be watchful, be waiting, be looking for the return of the Lord. 
Although I don't think that that matches very well with the other imperatives in the same verse. And so I would say that I think that when Paul says be watchful, he might be saying something like this, be watchful, be looking out for those who uh, within the assembly who are believing and teaching falsely. And I think that this is better. You know, so be watching for false teaching within your assembly. I think this might be better uh, because it goes with the commands in verse 13. I think many of these commands are like that. Stand firm in the faith. I'll talk to you about that in a little bit. And act like man, men and be strong, I think, are four commands where Paul is challenging us to stand against sin and be willing to do the right thing. So just so you think I'm not the only one who'd, who'd believe this, there's another New Testament commentator by the name of Mark Taylor, and he says this about be watchful. He said, the first four imperatives work together and they evoke the image of a soldier who is alert, steadfast, courageous, and strong in preparation for a conflict. And I think that he's on something there. I think that these first four imperatives belong together. And the be watchful then is, is kind of like be on the guard, be looking for people who will do stuff like deny the future bodily resurrection or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, be, be alert. He then says, stand firm. The, the, this imperative we've seen uh, twice in chapter 15. It was in verse 2, it was in verse 58. Remember, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You have that imperative there, be steadfast, be standing firm. Now, what he says here, though, is he, he describes in a little bit more detail. If you look at the imperative, he says, stand firm in the faith. Uh, some translations provide the word your in front of faith, but I think that that kind of doesn't do justice to what Paul is saying. Paul's not concerned here that uh, an individual believer would walk away from his profession of faith, his subjective profession of faith, but he's concerned that the church would not walk away from the faith. That is the content of the gospel that he proclaimed to them. So Paul says, as a church, I want you to be, be, be on guard, be looking, and stand firm in the faith that I've given to you. He does not want them to lose hold on the importance of the doctrines that he has given to them, especially the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout this book. Then he gives a little one-word command that's translated, act like men. Uh, or in some of the older translations, I never understood this, by the way, quit ye like men. Okay, so some of you might have that translation in front of you, quit you like men. Uh, but what it means, that one word, is just act like a man, be manly. Okay, and women, you're wondering how we apply this to you, right? Well, Paul's challenging the church here to act like a man, I think, is a reference to be, you know, be filled with courage and bravery. I think that Paul understands that this church is going to have to go through some difficult things. They're already in the midst of it. I mean, we see they're all divided up, following different groups. They're going to have to remove a person who is involved in ongoing immorality instead of boasting in him. Uh, they've got Christians suing each other down at the law courts in Corinth. They've got, dis they got like, huge disagreements over meat offered to idols and whether or not you could eat that or not. 
you go through the whole way through the book, there are all these differences and discrepancies. And, and I think Paul understands that this church is going to have to go through, through some difficult things. And so he says, act like men. Be strong. Be courageous. Then the next command he gives them is that. It's be strong. Uh, this, these last two kind of remind me, and we won't take the time to turn back there, but I tell you what, you can do this. You can come Wednesday night, because on Wednesday night, I'll be going through this text. I've been studying this, and I've been studying Joshua 1 at the same time. And if you remember in Joshua chapter 1, Moses has passed off the scene. He's died, the end of Deuteronomy. Very next chapter, Joshua comes on the scene as the, the person who's going to lead the people. And three times, God tells Joshua something. If you know what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, three times, why don't you say it out loud? Be strong and courageous, right? One time, be very courageous. I, I, I think that Paul's language here is kind of echoing that. Act like men, be strong. He's taking some words that were originally given to Joshua, and he's using them here in the Corinthians. He says, you know, as you think about the sort of things that you're going to have to undergo as a church, you're dealing with all the sin, potential divisions. Be strong, act like men. And so those first imperatives are concerning, I believe, believers or professing believers who are believing falsely about the gospel, and he's challenging the Corinthians, you need to do this, you need to, to do the right thing here. Uh, then the next imperative found in verse 14 is very important. This is a command regarding our spirit. This is my interpretation. Our spirit as we deal with those things. Last of all, he says, he says, or let all that you do be done in love. This speaks of the spirit or the manner in which we do things as followers of Jesus Christ. So we should do all things in a loving manner or way, even if we're confronting sin, or even with, if we're interacting with other believers in the assembly that we disagree with. We should do so in love. And again, I think this might be hard for the Corinthians because they're going to have to show love uh, for all sorts of different ways in different ways. They're going to have to show love to those people in different groups that they've previously felt alienated from. This will mean that some of them will need to demonstrate love to those of a different social or economic status when they gather together at the Lord's table and eat together, all one together, instead of only allowing the rich in the inner chamber to eat the food. They're going to have to show love. That means showing love across the entire church. They're going to need to show love toward those who believe different things about matters on, on Christian lib liberty. Some people felt that you could eat the meat. Some people felt that they, they felt really the exact opposite. And so if they're going to apply this verse, let all that you do be done in love, they're going to, they're going to have to choose to love their brothers instead of jumping to judgment of their brothers who hold different opinions than they do on matters of liberty. They're going to have to show love to those who think differently about worship practices in the assembly. 
There were some who really liked to boast about tongues. Tongues was, you know, their gift. There are others who liked prophecy better. But in that section 12 through 14, what did Paul tell them was the more excellent way? Love. Pursue love. Everything must be done in love. They must show love to each other instead of suing each other down at the law courts in Corinth. Paul there in that text said, it'd be better to defraud yourself entirely than to insist on this and abuse your brother and damage the testimony of Christ. So Paul says in verse 14, this is a powerful imperative, let all that you do be done in love. You know, I think it's one thing for us to hear this. It's, it's one thing for us to hear this about the other church, but it's another thing to actually live this way in community. And so I think verse 14 here is put by Paul, these final words, by the Holy Spirit, is kind of a test of the Corinthian assembly. It's a test. Will they rise above their differences and relate to each other in love? But I think it's a test for any church. I think it's a test for Colonial Baptist Church. You know, will we choose to love, prefer, serve, and honor others or focus on our own goals, ideas, and thoughts? Will we choose to love? And so you have these uh, first initial commands. Let me keep moving, though. Verses 15 through 18, I think I can go pretty quickly through this. You have uh, the second point I'd give to you, and I call these specific instructions. And so look down in your Bible at verse, verses 15 through 18 to see some specific instructions. Uh, it says, uh, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Here, Paul describes three important people that help us get a little bit more of a window into 1 Corinthians and what's going on. The three people are Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And uh, as we go through this text, I want to just notice a few things about them. Uh, first, I would notice how they're described. He describes them as the first fruits or the first converts of Achaia. Okay, and, and really there isn't a big problem at all with that description. Achaia is the province, the larger province, uh, kind of where modern day Greece is, where Corinth is a city, Corinth is the capital city of Achaia. Now, if you read through the book of Acts, you, you might see that there actually were some people saved in Achaia before these men in Corinth, they were saved in Athens. But I think what Paul's doing here is he's referring to it, uh, Corinth, uh, he's referring to Corinth when he says Achaia, because Corinth is the capital city. And, and often in the first century, uh, they would refer to the capital city of a province as the name of the province itself. So in Acts, Luke will call Ephesus Asia, because it's the capital of Asia Minor. Here, when he says they're the first fruits of Achaia, I think he's, he's meaning they're the first converts in Corinth when I, when I came to you. But uh, he continues to describe them in, in other ways here as well. He says, these are they who came to him. Look in verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of them. Okay, so that helps us a little bit too. Uh, these three men were from Corinth, 
And they had traveled to Ephesus where Paul was when he wrote this letter. And uh, it's, well, we believe, I mean, I, I believe, I should say, I don't know if you do. I believe that these three guys are the ones who brought the letter from the church of Corinth to Paul, where he was. Not only do I believe that, I believe that these three men are waiting for Paul to finish 1 Corinthians. So that as they make their way back from Ephesus, where Paul is, they will carry 1 Corinthians. Imagine that cool job. Carry first, Paul's first epistle, actually his second epistle. Well, we won't get back into that. His first epistle to the Corinthians back there. And so as Paul's describing, they're the first converts in Achaia. And they're the ones who have traveled to him, perhaps also bringing the letter to him. But one of the questions I have, and I think I've, I've gotten a little bit more clarification about this, is how are these three travelers related to each other? It's interesting how they're described here. He talks about the household of Stephanus, but not the household of the other two guys. And so it may be that these three men are independent leaders from the house churches of Corinth. That they kind of sent a delegation of three of their leaders, and these men took the month's journey you know, off work and all this, and they came to Ephesus where Paul was, and so as he's sending him back, he's just giving a, a glowing endorsement to three men. Or, and I think it's better to see it this way. I think it's better to see that uh, Stephanus is the, the household lord, or uh, he, he's, he's the man over the house, and that these other two men are slaves or servants within the house. Okay, now, there are a few few reasons I think that one is because of how Paul is writing this text he first talks about the household of Stephanus and then he returns I think to explain more of the household of Stephanus and who actually is coming to him these three men from I believe that household another reason I think this is because the, the other two words Fortunatus and Achaicus scholars have demonstrated were often used as slave names in the first century very common slave names in the first century. And so if this is true, I think it gives us a window into how Paul viewed distinctions in economic status in the early church. And that is distinctions in one's economic status mattered in no way to the apostles Every one of these men should be treated with honor. And he actually then goes on to describe what else we should do do to them. We should submit to them. That their economic status, wherever they are in the household, doesn't matter. They are faithful servants of God. And so, as a church, when these three men come back to you, what you need to do is you need to come under them to subordinate yourself underneath them. And then he says, and then we need to recognize that. We see that coming. That this is what the church is to do. Give recognition. Give honor to them. You know, there are times in church when we as a clergy member, we may bring someone to the front, but we'll find some other way to give honor or recognition to someone who's been faithful. And we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that. 
Translation, they've addicted themselves to the service of the saints. That's the sort of person we need to honor and recognize, one who has devoted themselves fully and completely to the work of the Lord. And they have also refreshed Paul's spirit. And not only his, they're getting ready to refresh the Corinthians' spirit when they come back with 1 Corinthians. And so... Paul gives these specific instructions in verses 15 through 18. And then he gives some final greetings in verses 19 through 24. And let me just work through these with you briefly. Look down your Bible, verse 19. He says, the churches of Asia send you greeting, Aquila and Priscilla, or Prissa, together with a church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Be our final exercise. No, I'm just kidding. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you, you all, in Christ Jesus. Amen. I just want to go quickly through this final section. I, did, you, did you hear the word? I tried to emphasize it a little bit other than the kiss part. I emphasized greetings, greet. Over and over again, you see those, those words. Greetings, greet. And so I think that he's primarily speaking of greetings in, from three different ways or three different points here. He, he first sends greeting from Asia where he is, verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia, I think he's probably primarily speaking of the churches in Ephesus, the capital city of Asia Minor. Send greeting Aquila and Priscilla. Why, Why would he send greetings from them? Well, they're in, they're in Ephesus with Paul. The, the church, one of the churches is meeting in their home, but the church of Corinth knows Aquila and Priscilla because Acts 18 tells us that they had spent time with Paul when he planted the church in the city of Corinth. It's very interesting. Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers by trade, and so was Paul. I think when Paul planted the church in Corinth in uh, 50, 51 AD or so, he's there, and one of the reasons he's there, outside of the gospel, is there were these large games going on, and people would be living in tents. And so as he's buying and selling, especially selling tents in this, you know, the plains outside of Corinth, he, he meets Aquila and Priscilla or believers as well. Now they've moved over to Ephesus and they send greeting back to the churches of Corinth. He says also, 
All of those in their house send you hearty greetings. All the brothers send greetings to you. So he brings greetings from Asia. Then in the middle of verse 20, he instructs them to greet each other. We do handshakes and fist bumps in their culture. They did a kiss on the cheek. It's interesting, I think Paul combines the, the, the typical social greeting with the adjective holy uh, to make sure this is completely above reproach. Holy kiss, greet each other with a holy kiss. And then finally, in verses 21 through 24, he offers his own personal greetings to them. And I think that there's some hidden treasures here as well. Verse 21, he explains that he is writing this greeting with his own hand, which um, we know from the beginning of the book that Paul had someone writing all of 1 Corinthians down for him, a man by the name of Sosthenes. But when you get to verse 21, although there really wasn't a verse initially, when you get to the end, Paul adds all of this in his own handwriting. Okay, and what does he do in this greeting? He gives his own personal greeting, verse 21, and then he starts with a curse. This seems like a little bit out of sorts for us in our world today. <laughs> oh, okay, I better pay attention. This is, what's that say? If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be cursed. While we might see that as like a really rough second line of greeting. I think it reveals Paul's heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's absolutely, there's one thing that he would in no way tolerate as a compromise, and that is if someone claimed to be a follower, a believer or something, but did not love the Lord. He does this in Galatians as well. If anyone preaches to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. And so he starts with this curse. He moves to words of anticipation, two Aramaic words that are often just transliterated into English, Maranatha, Maranatha. And it's just two short words that probably were a prayer addressed to the Lord. And so I do like the ESV translation, those two words. Our Lord come. It's an address to Jesus, and you're appealing to him to come back. And so Paul, as Paul ends this letter, he puts this very short two-word statement as a prayer to the Lord. Lord, I want you to come back. He then gives words of grace, grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. And then I'm really touched by verse 24. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Here Paul ends the letter by returning to what I think is the key theme in the letter, and that is love. As I said, three times in this final, these final words, he's talked about love. He says, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. In his own words, in that curse, he says, if anyone has no love, for the Lord, let him be accursed. But here he says, my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. Here he talks about his own personal love 
for the Corinthians. As I was going through this, I was doing some research, and I came across a commentator who summarized the importance of this last verse, I think, in a very powerful way. His name is Richard Hayes. Richard Hayes said, the last sentence of the letter, written in Paul's own hand, reaffirms his love for all the Corinthians, despite their failings and despite their arrogance. Paul concludes two of the last three paragraphs with love. We've seen throughout the book, it's a challenge for the Corinthians to properly love God, to love each other in community. And I believe that as a church, if we would learn to love properly, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and love others like ourselves, we would be exactly what God wants us. And in words that do not fizzle out at the end, you have Paul's final comment about the importance of love. 